Hello and welcome to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast and welcome to our very first ever Patrons Pick episode. I am your host, Kevin. Four times a year as a thank you for their support, I am handing over the programming reins to patrons of the show on Patreon where they can vote on who should come on the podcast. We have another poll up right now for our next Patrons Pick episode in December. The candidates to invite on the show are Mark Simmons, author of Ian Fleming and Operation Goldeneye, Keeping Spain Out of World War II, Julia Flynn Seiler, author of The White Devil's Daughters, The Women Who Fought Slavery in San Francisco's Chinatown, and Brian J. Jones, author of Becoming Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel and the Making of an American Imagination. If you would like to voice your opinion for December's patron's pick, head over to patreon.com forward slash cmtuhistory. This month I am also rolling out some new benefits on Patreon. Those who subscribe for $1 and above will now get early access to all upcoming episodes of the podcast. So if you're an early bird wherever you go, that's definitely not me, but uh, good for you if you are, this is definitely geared for you. And then the new benefit that I am most excited to tell you about for patrons supporting the show at $3 and above is a new bonus episode series called Alternate Histories. In this new series, I will interview novelists and fiction authors about how they ground their stories in history, but also bend the record to craft a riveting tale. I can't wait for the first episode of Alternate Histories to drop later this month. Again, you can learn about all the extras at patreon.com forward slash cmtuhistory. Well, I put out the call to the show's supporters over the summer, and they selected today's guest, Jerry Chanel, and her book, Saving Mona Lisa, The Battle to Protect the Louvre and Its Treasures from the Nazis, to be featured on the show. Jerry is a prize-winning freelance journalist who spent five years living in Paris researching the tale of how a band of brave museum curators painstakingly evacuated the world's largest art museum ahead of the German Blitzkrieg and then kept Europe's most prized artwork, including the Mona Lisa, out of the hands of Hitler and the Nazis. Jerry joins me from New York via Skype to discuss her book, Saving Mona Lisa. When you are done listening to this episode, head over to www.cmtuhistory.com for the show notes and extra resources. Now let's get to it. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast Bringing you strange but true things from the past It's not the average history that you learned in school We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools And stories that are just too crazy to believe The stranger than fiction and super unique Hello Jerry, welcome to the podcast it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, well, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, you are our very first patron's pick uh, in which supporters of the show picked a book to have the author come on, and they chose your book. Ah, that's wonderful. I'm so glad to hear that. Um, so your book is Saving Mona Lisa, The Battle to Protect the Louvre and Its Treasures from the Nazis. Uh, right. How did you discover this topic? And tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, my understanding is you spent quite a bit of time living in France to do this research. I did. I've been a writer for many years, so I had that background, but certainly not in with art history, just a strong background in research. And I was almost obsessed with everything French 
uh, from the time I was a child because I had an aunt who was born and raised in Paris, which is what led me much, much later to uh, move to France. I lived in Paris for five years, and I was always interested with the museum, um, not just the art, but the fact that there's 800 years of history and human nature and greed and all kinds of interesting stories. But how I got the idea for the book was really very bizarre <laughs> ironic and fortuitous. Um, at one point, a friend invited me to see an old documentary film about the Louvre. And in the first couple of minutes of the film, um, one of the uh, hosts said to the other, um, and it was not a film about World War II, because that part of the story had only been in bits of and pieces, which is what I found out afterwards. Um, but she said that uh, the museum wanted to evacuate the art when the Germans were coming, and they could not evacuate the very large paintings. They had tried to hide, hide what they could. They hid art in caves, but the very large paintings were too big to move. And so they tried to be very ingenious about where they put them, and they installed one of the very large ones in a Paris restaurant um, as a false ceiling. And throughout the war, there the, the Nazi higher-ups dined, not knowing what was over their head. So, okay. So I came home, and I literally took off my coat and sat down at my computer and thought, I wonder what painting that was, and started Googling around. And I could not find any reference to that at all. But within minutes, I started finding the most mesmerizing photographs of the time, many of which are, are, are in the book. Um, and what was so that's what led me to the story. And then I wanted I looked for more photographs. I tried to find the story behind the photographs. But the what's very ironic is not a word out of the woman's mouth was factual. The French did not try and hide the art from the Germans at all. They just wanted to protect it from the impact of war. Um, there was no size restriction. They got very creative. Um, and so they were able to evacuate the very largest paintings. Um, and nothing was hidden in a Paris restaurant. So that was all an urban legend. Correct. All right. Well, your book, you go into a lot of detail on how the evacuation actually occurred. And um, as you already hinted at, it's it's not exactly what I expected either. I, I was expecting them to, you know, be smuggling the art away and that type of thing. But um, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, what can you tell us about the Louvre itself? It's got this long history and a lot of experience with war. Long before it was a museum, which it's only been a museum for a couple of hundred years, it was for hundreds and hundreds of years a palace, but it came into existence because of war. Without going to the very earliest history, it was built uh, in the very late 1100s because France and England were at war and the two kings got called off to the Crusades and the king told the city folk to build a wall around the city um, so that when the two kings came back from the Crusades and started battling again, the English would have a harder time. But the Seine River runs through the city, and you can't build a wall across the river. So they built a fortress to help protect the river um, on the western end of Paris um, from the English for to protect against future warfare. And that was the Louvre. That was the name of it right from the beginning. And so it's 800 years old, and it was built because of war. 
And then you, if you fast forward hundreds and hundreds of years, once it became a museum, um, the museum was at risk every single time there was any kind of uprising or battle that took place in central Paris. And so the, the museum was stormed in 1830 during, not the French Revolution, this was subsequent to the French Revolution. And there had been, nobody had given any thought to how to protect the art. So they just put tiny signs at the entrance to the building that said something to the effect of, please respect the property. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and we all know it, the the effectiveness of signs, but in, right? in and this so case. It's a miracle. It's a, mir- it it's a like miracle it things didn't get destroyed. And then you fast forward to, I think it was 1870. It was the first evacuation of the art when um, Napoleon III declared war on Prussia. And at the very last minute, they decided to evacuate some of the most precious items um, to near the northern coast, thinking maybe they could evacuate things to England in case things got worse. Um, But it was a very small evacuation. Um, And it it got a bit bigger, but not so much bigger. They did a bit of advanced planning before World War One. And as World War One brought the battle line, you know, very close to Paris, not not into Paris itself, um, they do then start planning after the Treaty of Versailles um, in the event that there should be another war with Germany. And, and what did those plans look like? It was clear to most people in Europe in 1919 when the Treaty of Versailles was signed, that there would eventually be another war with Germany. And so planning, evidence of planning for the next evacuation goes back at least as far as the very early 1930s, even though World War II didn't start until um, the fall of, or the late summer of 1939. So they've started planning almost a a year before, um, a decade, rather a decade before. Um, And the plans were extraordinary. I mean, I spent several years going through various archives there, and it was amazing to look at the original documents and the extent of them. They spent years analyzing should they transport the art and antiquities by train, by canal, by river. I mean, there's, you know, the Seine River goes right by the museum. Should they evacuate it by truck? They spent years inspecting, analyzing what kind of buildings items should be stored in um, and spent uh, years investigating Chateau because It had to be a location that they considered far from potential battle, close enough to water for fire protection, which was and still is a concern for museums, but not very humid. There had to be large entrances to bring works of art, large works of art or sculpture in and out to make arrangements with owners. Um, And that within the museum, they measured every stairway, every elevator, um, all the art and develop maps of which way curators should walk to evacuate art. It was it, it, the the extent to which they planned was extraordinary. And and they had a interesting uh, priority system that you write about. Yes, there were different colored stickers that indicated the priority um, in the event of evacuation. Um, different colored stickers and different numbered stickers, but the Mona Lisa out of all the thousands and thousands of items in the museum was the only one that had three red stickers. Yeah, you have this great quote uh, from the book where someone says, if, if given the choice and we had to destroy all the world's art except one piece, I think we all know which piece we would save. Yes, and 
when you go to Paris and stand in front of the Mona Lisa, you really kind of wonder about that because it's very small. I mean, it's hard to get the full impact of it because it's behind, it's hermetically sealed, it's behind bulletproof glass. There are many, many people. You have to stand far back. But it's a very small painting. And what, what is another piece of irony is there's so much value attached to it and so much protection of it. But when da Vinci brought it to France, um, when the king of France became his patron um, in, the, in the 1500s, it's believed he, it was in a leather pack and he crossed the Alps on a donkey. And so <laughs> think, think about it. That's how Mona Lisa came to France. And now it's a whole different story. That's a, that's a great irony. Well, one advantage is, you know, it's mobile, at least. Yes. Uh, so as the events of World War II begin to unfold in 1939, um, how did um, curators respond to this, seeing the invasion of Poland and then see Hitler turn his sights onto France? They were monitoring events um, and closed. they closed the museum and by then, everything was arranged. They had contracted with trucking companies. They had staff arranged, including a great number of volunteers, but also packing specialists, art packing specialists. They had thousands of crates. They had um, reevaluated the sticker system. They had updated the evacuation routes. Um, they were, in case of bombing, were thousands and thousands and thousands of, of um, sandbags in place to protect the, the structure itself and items that perhaps couldn't be moved right away. They had huge wooden cylinders to roll the largest paintings, which is what they did with almost all of them. The large paintings, they just put on long cylinders and rolled them. Um, huge quantities of, of packing material. Um, and at the end of August, they closed the museum and literally started packing in minutes. How big are we talking? How many pieces? And, and how quickly did they do this? I forget exactly how many thousands of pieces of art, um, untold numbers of, of pieces of antiquity, the crown jewels. Mm -hmm. um, and a huge portion of it was gone within a week. That, that's then amazing, there were follow the up. Is... It was follow up movement through the end of October, but it was most of it was within days. From they closed the museum on and late, I believe, late in the afternoon on August 25th, and the first convoy with Mona Lisa on a truck and armed guards left in the morning of the uh, several days later, three days later, and so you can imagine how many convoys of trucks it would take to move it. Did, to try and conserve space on the trucks and to conserve space and storage, part of what they did is, to the extent possible, try to remove paintings from their frames. Um, and so there are photographs from the time of bare walls with chalk marks that indicated what had been there because they thought it would be easier to put things back where they belonged after war was over. Yeah, the, the photos in your book are very surreal looking. That, that to me was very important to have photographs there because, you know, as they say, a picture um, is worth a thousand words. But it's they're just very, very, very moving and, and very impactful. And part of my story in terms of writing the book was some of the effort it took to get permission to reproduce the photos. Um, 
over some of the, some of those photos took two years of corresponding with officials to get permission. But I thought you can't tell this story without actually seeing what happened. I I agree. I think that was a wonderful addition. So the Nazi invasion of France is surprisingly fast, and the paradigm changes a little bit. The it, it seemed to me that the curators were planning for a war, but not necessarily living under German occupation. How did that change their plans? It changed everything. So the evacuation that took place in the fall of 1939 it had been planned for almost a decade. It was very orderly, and everything that was moved were to various chateaux within the Loire Valley, which they thought would be far enough from any warfare, that active warfare that would take place, they presumed, in Paris. Um, and so they hadn't planned for any subsequent movement other than some minor moves that had to be made because there was one chateau that it turned out had too much humidity, etc. Um, but then the germ, and then really nothing happened for months. And then the Germans swooped into France and, and headed towards Paris and they had to evacuate. And then at that point, they thought the, the Loire Valley... A, would not be safe from the impact of war. There could be air battles that would impact it because by air, it's not very far from Paris. Um, And they were also worried about the Germans literally coming to the Loire Valley. So they had, there was a second evacuation of almost everything that had to be done with virtually no planning, but also at that point, almost no resources because any transportation vehicle that was safe that was roadworthy um, had been taken by for use by the military. The, the, the manpower was was being used for the military, and so like literally with German planes flying overhead, um, the curators and the artwork, along with you know tens of hundreds of thousands of French citizens, were fleeing to the south. So that was the the first change in, in the curators' plans. And yeah, uh, bombs are exploding not that far away from where the convoys are, and they're exactly uh, you know, getting stuck in traffic. Yes, and they moved. They moved to different chateaux in southwestern France, um, and the curators traveled with the art because the art still had to be observed for evidence. There's all kinds of records of the different inspections of the Mona Lisa, who had been stored in a um, custom-made box that had been made in 1938 and so they would open up that the Mona Lisa as well as other paintings to check for damage from humidity you know warping mite damage at one point they thought they saw some evidence of mites Um, so the curators had to stay with the art and so their life was in these chateaux um, looking after the looking after the artwork, and it wasn't as elegant as one might think because there was no heat. Um, They had to not only look after the art, but also had to, um, they were managers of the whole operation, so they had to look out for the welfare of um, the guards, for example. And there was one report that I found particularly interesting just from a human nature point of view because it's not what an art curator goes to school for, that they had to make sure to have snake bite kits um, and and so on. Um, as I read this book, it, it really um, resonated with me because I work in the public history field uh, with artifacts, and 
you know, these objects require such special conditions. And, you know, some of the places you describe are not ideal at, at all. It was a particular concern or a difficult balance between um, having the chateau near water source, very near water sources, because fire was always a big worry. So they had to be close to a lake or a pond or a river, like very, very close. Um, but also humidity does terrible damage to, to paintings. So they were worried about that. And old chateaux tend to be humid. Um, and at one point I was trying to check out a detail. I had read that the Mona Lisa, so Mona Lisa was stored in this case, but I had read somewhere that it was red velvet, which I thought was really what a wonderful detail. But by then I was very far into the research and had learned that you can't always believe what you read. There's many, many, many errors. Um, and through a series of wonderful coincidences, one person introduced me to another who introduced me to another, and I had a chance to meet with two hours with the daughter of two of the curators um, who followed the art around France. And she was, I think, 12 years old in 1940. So she uh, re was there and was old enough to remember and um, still remembers everything. And so at one point during the discussion, I said I had read about this red velvet and did she have any idea whether that was true. And she laughed. She said, yes, I, it was red velvet because I saw it, that her parents were the ones who were in the chateau where the Mona Lisa was stored. This was very early on. Mm -hmm. um, it was in a chateau that be they were concerned about the humidity. And so they kept it, the Mona Lisa, in their bedroom because it was the sunniest, driest room, the sunniest, driest corner in the chateau. And from time to time, they'd open it up and show the painting to her daughter, their daughter. So she said, of course, I saw the painting. And yes, the velvet was red. Wow. Can, can you imagine that, having the Mona Lisa? Yes. In your home. Wow. Yes. Yes. Um, so as the... Um, Evacuation operation in, and caring for the art is taking place in German-occupied uh, France as well as Vichy France. Uh, it becomes clear that the Nazis have an interest in artwork. Uh, what can you tell us about that? There were two levels of interest in the artwork. Hitler had a vision um, of having the largest, grandest art museum in the world. And so part of it he intended on buying and the rest he just figured he would loot. And so he clearly had his eye on the entire body of the French National Museum's holdings. And he made early, he or his, his generals on his behalf, made early efforts to try and get everything. But at that point, um, he was a bit attempting to uh, respect the Hague Convention, which says in about 10 places, no looting, no looting, no looting. And Germany had signed the, the Hague Convention. Um, so, and then later on during the war, as the tide turned against Germany, the Germans again tried to try and get all of it. But throughout the entire war, there was a whole other level because his... Um, Minions were, I mean, it was a, a Nazi high, uh, part of the high level Nazi party culture to be interested in art because Hitler was partly. Um, and several of them 
wanted specific pieces of art. So there was were ongoing issues throughout the war as different Germans tried to get specific pieces of art that they liked. So just as personal trophies. Or for, yes, as personal trophies. And for example, Goering um, had an enormous, enormous art collection in Germany of that was made up of art that had been looted from occupied countries. I'd like to take a short break from my conversation with Jerry to tell you about another really good podcast that you might enjoy. The Nothing Ever Happens in Canada podcast is run by my good friend, Canadian Girl, and it is chock full of tons of interesting adventures and bizarre history and weird paranormal tales and folklore. Even if you're not Canadian, there's something in here for everybody, and I highly encourage you to check it out. Here, take a listen. Welcome to Nothing Ever Happens in Canada, and I'm Canadian Girl. Do you like adventures, myths, legends, and learning about some of Canada's greatest moments in history? Well, then this is the podcast for you. Join me every two weeks as we travel around Canada, exploring things like mermaids, giants, lost gold mines, and we even stop once in a while to observe historical events and people. Come on over to the channel and join the crew by hitting that subscribe button today. You don't want to miss out on our next adventure. All right, so the the hero of your story is one particular curator, uh, and hopefully I uh, do his name justice here, uh, Jacques Jajard. Exactly. Good. Uh, And he is really pivotal in obstructing the German efforts to get their hands on the art. How does he do that? Because when, when I first picked up the book, my first thought was they're hiding the art uh, in places the Germans can't find it. But that that's not accurate at all. Correct. They couldn't have hidden the art. They, like I said before, they, did, they didn't hide the art. Um, but they their intent was not to hide the art. Their intent of moving it was solely to keep it from the impact of, of warfare, fire, bombing, looting. Um, but even if they had wanted to hide it, they couldn't have hidden it. Um, it's too big a museum. It's in the middle of a city. Um, there were long convoys of trucks. Anybody walking by would have seen it happening. There would be no way to do it in secret. Um, and, even if they had tried to keep it secret, the Germans had art spies in the city from the year before because Hitler already was making lists of things that he wanted, so the spies would have known. And the head of the French National Museums and the, the director of the Louvre, Jacques Chaujard, was furious because the newspapers were covering the evacuation. So all you had to do was read the newspaper to know what was going on. So there was they they couldn't have hidden it even if they wanted to um there were detailed records of what had been moved and where it went and within days the germans had acquired um documents from the different french archives and so they they knew where everything was and within several weeks had posted guards in front of all the art depots to quote protect the art, but it was really obviously to protect it for themselves. But at that point, part of the problem was 
you couldn't say no to the Nazis if they're not. You couldn't outright say no, um, or to the Vichy officials who are complicit with the Nazis. So Jojard was in a difficult position because the, his highest bosses sometimes were willing to um, listen to a German request for a particular artwork. And so really what saved a lot of the artwork was the fact that he was very crafty and a master negotiator and was very good at playing games. Um, and he did that throughout the war and pushed it to such an extent that he was afraid he would get fired. He was afraid he would get arrested and at one point had a plan to go into a hiding um, in the mountains of southern France. Um, so, for example, later this is there's so many, many, many examples. But later on um, in the French occupation, as the tide turned against Germany, um, the Germans and Vichy was wanted to help the Germans facilitate the movement of all the evacuated art towards the German border for its quote protection, which really meant they could very quickly move it over the border towards Germany, right? And so um, Vichy gave Jojard an instruction to find out from, to ask all the curators at all the art depots um, the volume of the art that they had to be able to plan for trucks. And at that point, n neither the French nor the Germans had a great deal of excess capacity um, for vehicles or drivers or fuel for that matter, which, which was in very, very short supply. So he couldn't say no to his bosses. Um, so he gave a formal request to each art depot that said, please let me know um, how much artwork you have so we can plan for vehicles. And then he called each one on the phone and said, and by the way, make sure to greatly exaggerate the volume so it will appear like this will be an impossible task. He did that. He did that through, throughout the occupation. So his his strategy was to repeatedly delay and correct and and and, and outwit them. Or, or another example from from at that time, um, around the same time the Germans asked for the vehicles, is they said that they thought because of where warfare was taking place, battles were taking place, that it would be good for the art to move it quote further to the east again. You know, what's to the east Germany, um, and so. Jojard couldn't say no, so instead he said, essentially, you know, I agree. I agree it should go further to the east, but you know, I think it should go even further towards the east than you think. I think it should go to Switzerland. We can move it to Switzerland right away. They have already indicated they would be happy to protect it, and they have such a wonderful reputation of being neutral. It will be very safe there. And that, you know, so that was the end of that. What could they say? He was a genius, a very, genius very at that kind of thing. Yes. All right, so what can you tell us about the day-to-day uh, -day experience of these curators who were assigned to follow the art and take care of it? So as curators of the Louvre in Paris, they would have been used to a very elegant existence, um, but it was totally not the case um, in the chateau they were in. They may have been in chateau, but again, you know, there was no heat. Um, they were worried about... It's not the, the romantic travel view of a chateau it was, that we might think. No, no. They were freezing, just like everybody else in France. There was no food. Um, so they were very hungry. 
they had no re- very few resources with which to do the job they were tasked to do. They never knew when German troops would show up at the door with machine guns, um, which happened any number of times, either looking for hidden resistance um, paraphernalia, pamphlets or, or weapons, um, because the Germans knew that many of the, German, the French curators were in the resistance. Sometimes they came knocking at the door because they th- thought with good reason that um, Jewish-owned art had been hidden there along with the French national-owned artworks. Um, so it was very much not the rarefied atmosphere they were used to in Paris. They were moving crates, um, arranging for weapons. So it was not, it was not a very easy existence. Uh, but they endure for four years, and yes. we get to 1944, and the prospect of an Allied invasion of continental Europe and the liberation of Paris uh, looks to be on the horizon, and that should be a source of great joy. But for the curators, it presents a whole new set of worries. Why is that? Because they were afraid that Allied planes would inadvertently bomb the locations where the artwork was. Um, And so they did several things to try and help prevent that. Um, Jojard, who was in the resistance, smuggled details of the locations um, to the Allies in hopes that the art depots wouldn't be bombed. Um, Also, he had helped one of the Jewish curators escape to the U.S., and he served as a curator at the Metropolitan Museum in New York. He passed on location info to the Allies. But they did other really creative things. Several of the... the chateau where the art was stored took these giant planks of wood and spelled out Louvre on the the large lawns in the back, hoping that the the name could be seen by planes. You have a photograph of that. That's, that's yes. maybe my favorite photo in the book. Yes. Yes, they were very, very creative, and they were determined to do what they could. So the, the Allied invasion is, is pretty quick. The war ends in 1945. Uh, when does the Louvre reopen? And in the grand total of things, how successful was this program in protecting the artwork? When their war was over, they couldn't bring things back right away for any number of reasons. Again, there was still a problem with a shortage of vehicles, a shortage of fuel. Um, there was no heat in the museum. <laughs> there was um, no way to heat the museum. Um, and they also, the curators also th- thought that it would be a good time to do some renovations. It's easier to do renovations when a place is empty. Um, so they had an ex- some small-scale exhibitions in nearby buildings, but the museum didn't open until 1947. Paris was liberated several years before, you know, so several years after Paris was liberated. So the museum opened in, in 1947. And um, in the grand scheme of things, they were absolutely extraordinarily successful in protecting the art, both from the effects of war and from the Germans. So there were not significant losses or damage. Correct, which is absolutely extraordinary. Because you would think separate and apart from the Germans' attempts to get things, but there was no damage in the course of 
all of the transporting that went on from one place to another, to another, to another. I mean, as anybody who has moved from one house to another knows, it's <laughs> almost impossible to unpack everything and not see something broken or chipped. Um, and there seemed to have been literally zero damage from um, all, all of the movement around the country. And I came across, so the, all the reports that went from the different curators back to Paris early on before the German invasion were carefully, you know, were typed. Um, but mm -hmm. then as everything f fell apart, the curators were sending back reports, but they were all handwritten. And when they had to quickly leave the Loire Valley, there's a fascinating handwritten letter from the curator who accompanied the truck holding the Mona Lisa because an axle was broken, the ropes were coming loose, and they were worried the whole trip that the crate would fall off the truck which it did not all right so so the last thing i wanted to ask you is uh you know obviously uh the louvre is pretty safe today as are the uh, most art museums there in western europe but is the destruction of art still something that that we need to be concerned with in the the war-torn places of the world just to back up a, a step in that question, it's a concern not just in war-torn places because there's still a question of properly protecting art from any risk. So, for example, during World War II, there was concern about fire. Um, and even when there's not war, there's concern about fire, which can very quickly destroy a museum. And in, I think it was last fall, so it's, I think almost exactly a year ago, there was a massive fire at the... Brazil National Museum, which just about destroyed the whole thing, I believe. I remember uh, seeing that on the news, yes. So art, so the protection of art is, you know, a, a serious issue, but clearly... Well, well and we had the, the fire at Notre Dame this year. Ye, ex yes, exa exactly, exactly. Um, and that's in a place that everybody thought had very high-level, sophisticated um, fire deterrent equipment. So it's just fire is, has always been and probably always will be one of the biggest problems, war or not war. Um, but in war-torn areas, it's it's been very much a problem. If you go back to the early 2000s, it was wide-scale looting of Iraq's National Museum, and more recently, Iraq and Yemen and other places. Um, but it's not just art. Um, it's also antiquities because, for example, ISIS believes in destroying antiquities as a way to destroy a of cultural heritage. Um, and that's still going on. And sometimes there's discussions about um, to what extent it's worth devoting resources or putting people's lives at risk, for example, um, for protecting art. But Rose Valland, who was one of the one of the curators at the Louvre, who totally risked her life um, during World War II, protecting there was a small museum just on the Louvre property. Um, and this is all in the story um, that that was the way station for all the art going to Germany, and so she was spying on the Germans during the whole war. So she said, there was a, a quote I have at the beginning of the book, that the French felt obliged to save this, I'm just reading this, save the spiritual values it held as an integral part of its soul and its culture. And in another point she wrote um, much later on, that it was simply a question of saving a little beauty of the world. 
So I think it's worth say it's all worth going to great extents to protect. I think we can all agree with with that quote. Mm-hmm. All right, Jerry. Well, this has been a really interesting book and really interesting discussion. Um, if listeners of the show wanted to pick up a copy of the book or learn more about you and your other work, uh, where can they go? It should be available at or through um, any brick-and-mortar bookstore, pretty much anywhere um, online. It's available through Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. Um, and there's some information about the book at SavingMonaLisa.net. All right. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jerry and learning a little bit about the history of the Louvre and the Mona Lisa. If you're new to the podcast, thank you for taking the time to check us out. Feel free to scroll through our archives. We have shows on all kinds of historical topics. Whether you're new or you've been listening for a while, I'd really appreciate it if you could head on over to iTunes or CastBox or Stitcher or Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts, and and just leave some kind of positive rating and review. It's It's an excellent way to get the word out about the show and help the podcast grow. All right, that is it from me. I will see you guys back here in three weeks on October 22nd when I will have a special edition Halloween episode for you. See you then.